0: Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show.
1: Try a beer style that you're not familiar with. Go and uh, not a not a brewery at a, and a, like a style that you're like I love hazy IPAs. Never tried this brewery. I'm gonna go try their hazy IPA. Like go try a style that you've never tried before.
0: Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us this week is Pat Fahey, the content director for the Cicerone Certification Program, a globally recognized certification and education program for beer professionals. In May 2013, Pat was the youngest person to pass the Master Cicerone exam and has dedicated his professional career to sensory, education, and development of the beer category. We discuss his first book, Building a Sensory Program, A Brewer's Guide to Beer Evaluation, which was released earlier this year via Brewer's Publications. Breweries of all sizes and home brewers alike benefit from having organized and regular sensory panels. Pat argues that sensory panels can be internally inclusive and that consumers' perspectives can be valuable in informing decisions made at any brewery. Our conversation also touches the evolving nature of beer styles and what it was like discussing every single beer style for Wired magazines each and every series. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to the Wired video and to learn more about Pat's book. Let's dive and get heavy. Welcome to Heavy Hops. We're uh, very excited to have you with us today. Awesome to be here. Let's begin by talking about your book, Building a Sensory Program, A Brewer's Guide to Beer Evaluation. With a title like that, who could possibly be the audience for this book?
1: You know, it might surprise you, but uh, the core audience is brewers and breweries. Uh, and the The book is definitely geared towards a professional audience. It's a bit more of a a technical tome, if you will. Um, It's, as the title states, it's designed to help small to medium-sized breweries either get a sensory program started, get a sensory program off the ground, or for breweries that already have a sensory program but want to refine what they're doing a little bit. There's a lot in there that I think could help breweries of of many different sizes with that sort of thing. Uh, That said, uh, there's also a lot in the first half of the book that talks about sort of a wide variety of topics that you would want a panel leader to know about that cover various things like sensory systems, uh, bias, tasting technique, beer flavor, And I think that there is probably a broader audience for some of those sorts of topics. So I imagine that there'll be people in like homebrewing communities and people who are beer judges but potentially not brewers that will still find a lot of stuff interesting in the book.
0: Uh, Absolutely. A brewer can be uh, a lot of different people with a lot of different interests and at a lot of different scales. So walk us through sort of the creation of the book. I know that this thing did not come together uh, overnight. (laughs) Did you wake up one morning and decide to write this book?
1: So uh, the impetus for the book actually was an RFP, a request for a proposal from the Brewers Association, from Brewers Publications. So the book is done through BP, which is the publishing arm of the Brewers Association. And I think it was... September of 2018 that they put out a request for a proposal for somebody to write a book that covered sensory programs, how to, you know, how to build a sensory program. And at least initially, it it came across my radar in part because the person who's in charge of Brewer's Publications reached out to me and asked if I would submit for it. Um, And I, you know, I do have a background background in doing a lot of flavor training. I have a lot of experience teaching people about beer flavor and how to taste beer, but I've never worked as like a, I've never worked in a brewery. I've never managed a sensory program. So at least initially I was kind of hesitant. I didn't know if it would be a, a, a good fit, but the more I thought about it, you know, what I've done in my career at Cicerone has been to take various topics and to try to boil them down in a way that's digestible and easy for people to understand. And so I figured that, you know, because I have a lot of connections and relationships with people who do run sensory programs that given enough time to do research, I would be able to put together something that would be a really useful tool for people to then go out and, and build their own sensory program. Um, so I, uh, had a few conversations with some of my friends who do work in the sensory world, one in particular, her name is Lindsay Barr. She used to manage the sensory program for New Belgium and she since has left there and she started a company called DraftLab, which is a sensory software that's really awesome. And a lot of breweries around the country are using it now. Um, she's a really good friend of mine and I talked to her about it a little bit. And she agreed that if I ended up getting it, that she would serve as my technical editor. So, uh, with that sort of in my back pocket, I submitted. I think I was confirmed that I would be doing the book in November of 2018. And from there on, it was just a lot, a lot of research, and then a lot of time writing.
2: You, you briefly mentioned your experience with. Doing sensory trainings um, in the past, with whether it was working with beverage industry or other people in the restaurant industry as well. Do you feel like you've made certain observations over over your time doing these trainings and visiting breweries that you um, have implemented into this book? And if so, what what were they?
1: So, I I, I don't know. I would. I would almost, so I have done a lot of training with people through Cicerone doing things that are specific to like tasting technique and uh, especially focus on specific beer attributes, like, you know, doing off-flavor trainings, teaching people to recognize things like diacetyl or acetaldehyde, those sorts of flavors. If anything, I think that well that did inform some of the pieces of the book that actually all of the research that I did for this book has had more of an impact on informing the way that I now do training when I go out and teach people about flavor. And, and one of the things to that end, you know, like I have taught people about tasting technique for years now, but the tasting techniques that you use when you're just, you know, assessing a beer that you're trying to enjoy, or even a beer that you're like, trying to assess critically but not necessarily in a controlled sensory environment are slightly different than what I would recommend people use if they're sitting on a sensory panel at a brewery. So I, I would say that there was some overlap that, you know, the biggest, the biggest pieces that I was able to take from what I'd done in the past were things related to understanding of sensory systems and how those work. Uh, understanding of tasting technique, understanding of, of beer flavor and how different flavors appear in beer. But the research that I did for the book, honestly, will now inform what I do in my day-to-day work, which I think is a really awesome byproduct of the process.
0: What were some of the challenges that you faced in the research and in kind of putting the volume together?
1: So, the research I would say was not necessarily the challenging part. I I really enjoyed the research and kind of what I did first was spend a lot of time reading what exists in the world of, of sensory texts. And in doing that, it, it became more and more clear why this book was so necessary. Most of the existing sensory texts out there are, focused on really, really large company, you know, they're focused on difference testing where they're like, okay, you you want to have 200 assessors to run this sort of test. And it's like no brewery outside of the largest multinational breweries that exist are going to be able to do that sort of sensory. And honestly, like that's not what most the sort of sensory that most breweries need to be doing. There's not a ton out there in terms of uh, things that cover use of sensory for product release, especially on the smaller scale. Um, and so one of the goals in, in putting this book together was to take the best practices that I found both in these books and in talking to people out there in the industry and kind of refine them into good practices that, that people could still utilize. So, uh, the research aspect beyond all of that reading just entailed interviewing and meeting with a lot of different sensory professionals. Um, and that was honestly really fun. Uh, you know, I got to sit on sensory panels for a number of breweries across the country, at least pre COVID. Um, and, you know, once COVID hit, it moved more into a doing phone interviews sort of thing. But um, that was a really enjoyable part of the process in terms of the biggest challenges, uh, honestly, just like the discipline to write it was part of it. You know, it's, I, I do a fair amount of writing and editing in my work at Cicerone, you know, putting out educational materials for the company. Um, but, this was a 90,000 word book. Like it's, it it was a lot. And I have like so many, so many memories of just trying to squeeze writing this in around having a full-time job, you know, being up at the Cicerone office, like every weekend working on the book, trying to write before work, after work, being on the road. Like I have a recollection of uh, in, in late 2019, I had a trip for work to China And uh, like the first couple days that I was there was like horribly jet lagged. And I have recollection of being like getting up at like three in the morning and just like writing for a few hours in my hotel in Shanghai. Um, You know, during COVID uh, my, my partner and I went on a few road trips and like, so I, you know, there were plenty of times where she was uh, faithfully there driving while I was sitting in the passenger seat, like editing through proofs of the book. So honestly, just, The work of it was one of the biggest challenges from a perspective of the, like, things that I had to write about that were challenging. um, I I mentioned already that one of the things that I've been fortunate to have experience doing is is taking various topics and trying to simplify them or or present them in in a more digestible way. Um, so that's something that like, I feel like I'm generally pretty good at, but there were a few topics for this book in particular, you know, to understand how to evaluate different types of tests and the results from those tests, you need to have at least a rudimentary grasp of statistics and like writing about statistics in an approachable way. Like that for me was one of the hard, like there are people out there that really dig statistics Uh, i don't know a lot of them but uh so that was definitely a a, a challenge and you know i had to spend a lot of time with that material reviewing revising and just trying to boil it down to something that you know somebody who maybe doesn't have a science or math background who like uh, brewer that wants to put this on could still read through and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I don't have to stretch too hard to understand what he's talking about. So I would say those were some of the most challenging pieces of the process.
0: When you're looking at a a beverage as as a consumer or even as a judge versus someone who's a brewer, are the why the beverage tastes this way and what they're tasting is like the exploration for those answers a little bit different?
1: Yeah, I, I I would I would say that it is different. You know, there's even as a brewer tasting a beer, um, uh, speaking as someone who's not a brewer, but <laughs> uh, there are still a lot of elements that line up with the consumer experience or the judge experience in terms of what you're looking for. But when you talk about the sensory side of things, um, you know when you're running a sensory program, when you're tasting beer from a sensory perspective, you really kind of get away from the hedonic elements of the beer, like whether or not you like it or not. And it becomes a lot more about breaking it down very specifically into its component parts. And that is a very different sort of tasting exercise. Uh, So when people are sitting on panel whether or not they're they're brewers or not you know and that's a thing that I talk about and you hear people say uh, sensory programs typically are not limited to just brewers and shouldn't be limited to just brewers you know you want to if you're a really small brewery you probably are pulling in anybody who's willing to come in and taste and even at larger breweries like they want to have the best tasters on the panel so they might be pulling people from marketing department or the accounting department in, in a much larger brewery. Um, but whoever it is that is tasting in that sensory environment in a, in a brewery, it is a very different exercise in that you are trying to basically depends what sort of tasting exercise you're doing, but usually you're kind of like picking the beer apart based on objective characteristics trying to ensure that the beer is as consistent as possible, which is a very different exercise than blind judging a beer that you've never
0: had before. Do consumers' perceptions of flavor influence the decisions that are made at the breweries? When we think about 8,500 breweries in the United States, most of them probably being under 1,000 barrels a year, And a lot of the people starting those breweries often being home brewers or people that are like very well connected to their community and very open to conversation. Do the consumers end up impacting decisions that are made at breweries? Was that something that you uh, explored in this book?
1: It wasn't necessarily something that I went into in, in huge detail, though, I did talk a little bit about ways that you could potentially put on consumer testing at, at the at a brewery. But I think, regardless of size, yes, like consumer opinion absolutely should impact the the beers that you're making. And even you know, at at the s- smallest sorts of breweries, like you mentioned, we have so many breweries in in the country now, and on the long tail, a lot of them might be. Producing less than a thousand barrels. In a lot of cases, those breweries are probably selling some or even most of their beer out of uh, taproom, out of their own, you know, out of their own on-premise facility. The conversations that you have with your customers across the bar—that's potentially your consumers' opinions impacting the beers you make. If they're saying, you know, I really love this beer. I love what you did with this one, or like. You know, I don't like this, this IPA as much as this other IPA that you guys do, even if they're not able to state like any specific flavor cues, that's feedback from, from your customers. And I know that like some, I've certainly heard brewers that subscribe to the mantra, like, you know, I make what I like to drink, um, which I think is, that's great. But like, ultimately you're not the one drinking all of your beer. Like your customers are, are the people who are drinking your beer and one of the things that I that I think about, not just in beer, like in beer and food and what food and beverage generally, these are hospitality industries and at least to me like hospitality starts and ends with a focus on the customer. So you know, you can still be authentic and, and true to what you want to do, but still take input from your from your customers. You know, as a brewer, you don't have to necessarily look and say like pastry stouts are hot or like smoothie sours are hot. So I got to be brewing those. Like if you're a 1000 barrel brewery that focuses on lager production, you've probably cultivated a set of customers that share similar tastes with you. You can listen to those customers either just across the bar at the taproom or through some more formalized way of, of collecting feedback. And use that to influence what you're making and, and what you're selling to them. And, and ultimately, I think that that it, it, it's not just a making beer. It's like anything in life. If you're able to engage in a, in a feedback loop, it's going to make you better. So, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, finding ways to utilize your customers' opinions to shape your beers is, is a useful exercise. One of the things that I talked about in, in the book was like you could even do something as simple as like if you have a, a new test beer on, set up like a, a Google form with a simple hedonic test, so like a, a one to nine scale of like extremely dislike to extremely like. Uh, and, you know, when somebody comes up and buys a beer, say, hey, we have a new beer. We'd like you to taste it and rate it. And just like have a QR code that takes them to that Google form, scan it, like you can get, customer data of how much your customers like a new beer, which one of the things you read about, if you read like sensory textbooks, like I did a lot of, um, consumer testing is really hard in most industries because like, you've got to get like, if you're trying to new, if you're Danone and you're making a new flavor of yogurt, you've got to pay to bring in 500 people and, and like spend their time and, and taste this product. Like consumer testing is really expensive. In the beer world, people that have tap rooms already have thousands of their customers coming and consuming their products. Like you have a built-in mechanism that draws people in. And those people that are already there, they're like they are your fans. If you can present them with something and say, like, hey, we're prototyping this new thing and you already love what we do and you love beer can you give us feedback and help us shape our next beer? Like your customers are gonna be stoked on that. You're gonna get really useful data out of it. There, There's so many positives to, to taking that sort of approach to refining the way you make beer. So absolutely, I think without a doubt, consumer, your, your customer opinion should definitely influence the, the sorts of beers or, uh, you know, specifics about the beers that you are making.
2: Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, you bring up an interesting point, so I'm going to pose a hypothetical. Excellent. If, I, if I have a small brewery, and let's say I'm making anywhere in the range of 800 to 1,000 barrels a year, our beer sells out every weekend and everyone's super happy. We're tasting the beer at the brewery before it's packaged, so we know what it should taste like and what it is tasting like. Why is it important, then, that we have a sensory program at this brewery?
1: So... You know, and I think that that's a totally reasonable question. And I think one of the things that this book hopefully helps do for people is is demystify for them just what a sensory program does. Because I think it's one of the reasons why I think this book was as necessary as it was is that you know quality, quality, quality has been this mantra from coming from the Brewers Association, coming from I think everybody knows that like quality is super important. And I think a lot of people also know that like a sensory program can be a useful tool, a very useful tool to achieving beer quality, but like people like, cool. So I got to have a sensory program. Like, what does that mean? Um, What you just described is like the bare bones of a sensory program, like the, you know, for a, a brewery that's just starting a program. If you were to do just one test on your beer, you'd be doing a type of test called a true to target test for product release. And so what that test basically entails is you with a group of tasters build out profiles of each of your brands of how they are supposed to taste, what the appearance is supposed to be like, what the aroma, the taste, the mouthfeel of the beer is supposed to be like. And then you test every batch of beer against that. So what you just said, you know, you know how the beer is supposed to taste. That's your brand profile, like formalize it a little bit and make sure that you like have a group of tasters that sets out what that's supposed to be. And then you're tasting all of the beer and making sure that it matches up against that. That's your true to target test. And that's like, that is the foundation, not just of a small sensory program, but like you look at how... Sierra Nevada or New Belgium test their beer for product release. That is the core of, of a sensory program. So I think one of, for some people that might put up resistance and they're like, well, we already do these things. Like, why do we need a sensory program? It's like, you already kind of have a sensory program. You just need, like, you might find value in formalizing it a little bit. Because one of the, one of the things there is some of the valuable things that you get from having a sensory program is having more than one or just a couple people taste it. Nobody has a perfect palate. Everybody has blindnesses and weak spots. And especially, um, you know, brewers can fall into a trap where it's one of the, it's one of the biases that I wrote about in the book. It's called the Ikea bias, where basically the, the, the idea behind it is that when you have a hand in creating something, you are more likely to overlook its flaws. Um, you know, goes along with the furniture that you build, that you get from Ikea. But for, for brewers, there are definitely brewers who like through no fault of their own, biases are like, they're your brain playing tricks on you. And so through no fault of their own, they may overlook flaws that are present in the beer. So being able to have a group of people sit down taste the beer, make sure that it does, in fact, line up with how it's supposed to taste is just a super useful exercise. I say, too, I talk about this a little bit because you have some small breweries that don't really have brands. And so that makes it harder or maybe even impossible to build brand profiles and test against those. Even in those cases, what I would advise and, and what I've seen be really productive is have your brewers draw up what they expect the profile of that brand to be like, and test the beer, have your sensory panel test the beer against the profile, against that profile. The thing is, is like you mentioned, like at a small brewery, when, when somebody makes a beer, they have an idea in mind of what they want it to be. But if it doesn't turn out to be like that at some small breweries, like, they're like, oh, it's not exactly what I wanted, but like, it's still pretty good and we're gonna put it out and it's gonna sell through and my customers are still gonna be happy. That's fine from a business perspective, but you're passing up an opportunity to become a better brewer. You know, As soon as they taste the finished beer and it doesn't taste like what they originally intended to, if they haven't approached that thoughtfully, it's just like, okay, cool, well, that's fine. And this is what the beer is now. But like, if you're able to say like, all right, as I write the recipe, this is the flavor profile that I'm targeting. And you get to the end, you put it in front of your panel and they're like, you know, you said you wanted this beer to taste like pineapple and mango. Um, and we're not like, it, it's, got, it's got citrus elements. It's got like, it has, a, you know, a fair amount of hot flavor, but we're not getting any tropical fruit out of it. You can then look at that and say, okay, the next time I want to make a beer that has those characteristics, what do I have to do? to boost that, how can I do a better job of doing that? So I think even for breweries in that position, like why deprive yourself of an opportunity to get better? Like with the size of the market, I don't think that there's any room for complacency. Like quality is so important. Competition is only going to get more and more fierce. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that you can be doing using sensory to make sure that your beer remains good or gets even better and uh, you know who wouldn't want to do that
2: no definitely you touched on a lot of things there and um, a little bit of what a brewery should do as far as a sensory program goes as well as how a brewer should approach from a bare minimum aspect but how do we go about incorporating a sensory program alongside the technical training that a brewer receives? And like what moving forward in the in the beer world as everything becomes more tight knit and uh, competitive in a way as well? How how do we start incorporating these sensory programs to brewers?
1: So one of the things that I think is, is really important is, is if possible, you know, build the idea of the importance of sensory and sensory work into your brewery from day one. The breweries that have the best sensory programs practice what I refer to as like a culture of sensory across the brewery where, you know, everyone recognizes that the sensory program is playing a role in if not outright shaping the beers coming out of the brewery, at least making sure that the beer that leaves the brewery is, is in good shape. Um, so one of the things that's really important is getting, you know, from the top on down, whether that's brewery ownership, head brewer, all of the people in the sort of upper tier of the brewery need to understand and believe in the importance of a sensory program. Um, you know, it's pretty true about anything in any organization. If you try to start an initiative and the top of the organization is not behind it, it's ultimately not going to work out. So that's one thing that I think is really important. In terms of incorporating it into training, uh, that's another hurdle that I think people sometimes put up uh, that prevents them from getting a program going they you know they make the assumption like okay if I want to have a sensory program I need to do like 40 hours of training with my tasters and I got to teach them to recognize all these attributes and you know if I'm not able to do that like I'm not able to have a valuable or a valid sensory program it is true that the more training you can give your panelists the better they're going to be the the better your data is going to be but the first job of a sensory panelist is simply to be able to recognize whether a given beer matches a profile and, and not, you know, it's not an exercise where it's like, okay, this is the first time you've tried this beer. This is the profile for it. Does it match it? It becomes a thing where it's like, all right, you've tasted this beer a hundred times or hundreds of times. So you're very intimately familiar with how it's supposed to taste. Does it match what it's supposed to taste like and that's an exercise that doesn't require nearly as much time and and training to get panelists ready to do Um, you know you can get panelists tasting as a group and and doing brand training at a pretty early point in sort of the overall taste training journey So you can get panelists spun up and producing useful data in a pretty short amount of time. Um, I think once again, it's just sort of like uh, people have this idea that they need to invest so much time and so much resource in getting these people trained up. And uh, it's it's an impediment to putting a sensory program in place.
0: So you don't need to be the foremost expert on sensory in order to be a valuable contributor to a panel and your brewery or at a friend's brewery. You
1: know, this is one of the things that I talked about with Lindsay is and one of the things that I kind of worked on as I shaped the language that we used in the book, but you don't even need necessarily to be an expert on sensory, to be a good panel leader, like to be a good panel leader, I think you need a curiosity about sensory. You need to be kind of excited about this material and willing to kind of learn on the fly. But but one of the things that I talk about in the book is like, you know, I I present all of this information up front that it's like, ideally, this is the stuff that a panel leader would know how to do. If you want to be a panel leader and you don't know how to, you don't know all of these things, you have this book as a reference. So uh, even even for somebody in that position just being enthusiastic about implementing the program and and doing the work is going to be enough to help you get a viable program off the ground and yeah for your panelists in particular the more training you can give them the better but you can with a pretty small amount of training get panelists that are producing useful data that will help you make better decisions and ultimately like that's your goal with a sensory program is that you are running tests, you're collecting data that helps the brewery make better decisions. Plain and
2: simple. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, you bring up the, the amount of technical knowledge needed to be on a panel is, is more minimal than most would think. And it is that curiosity that spikes, um, or sparks someone into being in that position. Right. But, We all love food. Well, I shouldn't say we all love food. We all love beverage, but most of us do. So in theory, most people, as long as they have that, that spark in them where they are, they have this deep passion for food. And to throw another caveat in there too, we're living in the 21st century where master chefs on like Fox and stuff. So everyone seems to have this curiosity and passion for food and beverage. So in your opinion, what distinguishes this panel person over that person who might watch MasterChef and be like, that's sick, like, I wanna do that. Like, I now have this passion for food. What separates that panelist from that person?
1: I would say nothing, honestly. I mean, this was another thing we talked about. when, If you read a sensory text, there's a lot in there about pre-screening panelists. Um, you know, what you need to do to make sure that the panelists you're selecting from are are going to be solid and one of the things that i talk about in the book is like in the case of a small brewery you probably don't have a large enough pool that you can like exclude people uh, based on some pre-screening test that you're going to run but the other thing that i think is is an even more valid point is that you know people run these pre-screening tests like are you able to recognize the basic tastes or, or do such and such exercise? And these people are totally untrained. Um, you know, it's uh, one of the guys who I has done a lot of sensory training with me, Bill Simpson from Araxa, Care Technologies. This dude is like OG hero of the sensory world. Um, one of the kind of comparisons or the analogy he uses for pre-screening tests is like, you know, if if I've never studied Japanese and you give me a, a test on Japanese, I'm going to fail it. Like, that doesn't mean that I couldn't become a really good speaker of Japanese. It just means I haven't learned it yet. So, you know, to test somebody on something that they've never been trained to do is not really useful. You might be screening out people who have a tremendous amount of sensory aptitude but just haven't been trained. So, so to the question of like, what's the difference between those people? I'd say nothing. I'd say, you know, for most breweries and even for larger breweries talking to like the Sierra Nevadas and the Allagashes uh, of, of the world, like they aren't doing pre-screening tests. They're, you know, welcoming people who want to participate into, into their trainings and they may make a decision following training. If they had somebody where it's like, look, you know, you've, you've been through training and no matter what, like you still are just off from what the rest of people are doing, um, then that person might get excluded from panel. But another thing, and I, I talk to panel leaders who do this, they're like, you know, if it's a person who's really excited about the program and they're like spreading the good word of of the importance of sensory, it's probably more damaging <laughs> To remove them from the panel than it is to just keep them on and exclude their data, and so I talked to panel leaders who were like, "Yeah, if I have, if I have an under who's, who would say like the only reason I would remove a panelist is for bad attitude," um, and one of the things, one of the things that a lot of panel leaders said is the hardest thing that they have to deal with is panelist motivation. Just getting people to show up day in, day out. And to your point of, you know, a lot of people in this industry are in it in part because they love food or flavor or beverage. You wouldn't think that it would be a challenge to get people to come in and taste beer as part of their job. But like the work you do on a sensory panel is is very different than sitting back and enjoying a beer. Um, So that is actually a thing that, that people struggle with. So a a couple points there. I think one of the most important things in selecting panelists is that they are enthusiastic, curious, excited about, about doing this sort of thing and that that helps drive them to show up. But beyond that, you know, maintaining panelists motivation is one of the most important things that a, a sensory leader grapples with, even if, you have panelists that are super excited. If you don't manage what they're doing in the sensory space well, you can put a damper on that excitement and end up with not having any panelists show up. And the biggest thing that I found that breweries who were really successful did in that area was it just comes down to communication. Um, Largely communicating with other departments to make sure that the data being used or the data being produced by the sensory program is actually being used by other parts of the brewery and then communicating back to panelists how the data that they're producing is being used Um, because for so many people that work in small breweries, like they're doing it because they're enthusiastic about the product and they're enthusiastic about the brand. Like if you work in accounting but you, like your panel leader sends out an email and is like, look, we had this sample that got flagged and our sensory panel was able to prevent this flawed beer from going out to market. Like you just helped make a, like shape a decision that the brewery made about their beer. Or if you participated in like uh, prototyping of a beer, like anything that you do that shapes the the beer, it gives you kind of like more buy-in to the success of the brewery, that's far and away what I saw that really kept panelists engaged and excited about what they're doing. It's like showing them that what they're doing really matters and is making a difference. A lot of people put a lot of emphasis on attribute training. You need to make sure that your panelists are able to recognize things like diacetyl and acetaldehyde. Sure, that that is important and very useful if they can do it. But even if they can't, if the only thing that they can do is recognize whether or not a beer tastes the way it's supposed to. If a beer comes through that has diastole in it, they're not going to be able to say what the specific flavor is necessarily. They won't be able to point to a specific part of the process that got screwed up, but they're going to be able to say, like, this beer is not true to Target. There's, there's something wrong with it. And you can do further investigation at that point. And that information is extremely valuable. So most people, there's, I think, like, culturally, we have this idea, like, that there are people that are really good tasters, and then most of the rest of the people are just not, and I've always sort of been of the opinion that, like, tasting, like most things, is a highly trainable skill. Most people have enough aptitude to be able to do these sorts of exercises, and so, Yes, you'll occasionally come across somebody who maybe is not able to get their palate into a place where they're producing useful data. But in my experience, at least, that's the exception rather than the norm. So, like, really, it is about: are these people positive about what they're doing? Are they showing up? Um, do they do they come and do they perform well in training? And through that training process, you know, you'll get a feel for what panelists are maybe sharper than others, what panelists are more sensitive to certain flavor attributes, those sorts of things. But but yeah, I mean, for small breweries, it's likely a an all hands on deck sort of activity. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of benefits to that in that it makes everyone feel kind of like they have a little bit more ownership of of what's happening in the brewery.
0: Absolutely. I think that that's super important. Any way you can get your group of people together to come to a common understanding of what these things should taste like, uh, an exercise like that can build camaraderie and also building a common flavor vocabulary is super important.
1: Totally. Um, You know, one of the tools that I recommend people use, I talked about Lindsay and draft lab a little bit, earlier, uh, something that some people may have seen out there is the beer flavor map. Um, back in the day, there's, you know, there's the beer flavor wheel, which was produced in like the seventies. Uh, the idea behind the beer flavor wheel was that it would be updated every few years as people learn more. And it was never updated once. Uh, so in, I think it was 2016, um, Lindsay and, and another uh, woman released the beer flavor map as sort of like a spiritual successor to the beer flavor wheel. And, you know, I can speak as, as like a GABF judge used to be that all the judges in their judging packet would have a flavor wheel. Now everybody has the flavor map. So the flavor map is like a, it's, it's a lexical tool. It lays out a set of different flavor descriptors. And one of the things that I recommend for people like when they're doing training is, get the flavor map in front of your panelists and let them use that lexical set to help them choose descriptors. And what I have found training groups and what I've seen happen in groups that I've trained alongside is that people are able to align on flavor vocabulary a lot more quickly than you would think. Um, And so what you end up getting is like you have typically a subset of that full flavor map that your panelists become more and more comfortable with using and recognizing in the beers that they're tasting, which is really valuable both for product release, but also when you're trying to develop new beers, having, being able to have your panel, uh, you know, somewhat objectively analyze those beers is really, really valuable.
2: Let's kind of shift gears when we're thinking about these flavor profiles and how they help us in determining different styles of beer. Um, Over the pandemic, you contributed to Wired's magazine each and every series, where you explained every style of beer in one hour, which is a feat in and of itself. But what was it like boiling down these styles, um, some of which are definitely argued for centuries now at this point, um, into this one-hour bit?
1: Oh my God, it was an undertaking. It it, it was. I think they did a really good job of making the finished product like slick and clean and with like all of the B-roll in the world. Um, but, you know, it came out to be, I think an hour and eight minutes. We, and I say we, like I was here at home with the people from Wired on a, on a zoom call for about nine hours filming it. Um, so that was just, like, getting all of the content produced. I haven't, like, I haven't watched it closely enough, but you can, like, probably see the quality of light change over the course of the video because, like, it's the it's, it was a full day uh, of, of filming. I was exhausted at the end of it. But in the lead-up to that, um, you know, I spent a, a week or so kind of, kicking around and, and trying to boil each and every beer style down into kind of like a couple interesting sound bites. And one of the things, you know, that I get to do when I do training for Cicerone, you know, we have a lot of different levels of the program. The way the program is structured is even at the first level certified beer server, like you, we touch on every single area for the most part, we don't cover beer and food pairing too much at that level, but we touch on basically everything that is present at the, even the master level of the program. It's not that there are lots and lots of like, oh, we're going to now cover this totally new area of study. It's just that as you go up with each level, it gets more and more in depth. And so I'm used to presenting information on, especially beer styles at a lot of different levels of knowledge, you know, you're going to do a different presentation when you're talking about a style to somebody who's taking the certified beer server exam versus somebody who's taking certified Cicerone or advanced Cicerone. So it was kind of like flexing that skill set and, and looking at every style and saying, okay, how can I, like, what little factoids do I want to pull out that's going to make this style kind of interesting and you know they they fell into a few different categories like a lot of times it would be talking about specific flavors or maybe specific commercial examples if there was like a style where people really associate that with one or two different brands um histories of certain styles like some styles have histories that are are really really interesting Uh, and in some cases like just infused personal stories or personal experiences into that, but it was, I, I pulled up the outline of it recently. And so like the outline of what I talked about for that was 5,500 words. So it was uh, yeah, it was a process just kind of boiling everything down to a point where you could get just like a quick 10 second soundbite on a style
0: it was quite an undertaking and i imagine in a way you may have felt like you were underselling certain styles after watching the video and re- and uh, understanding that maybe some things were cut from what you had said
1: oh yeah uh you know i've got to be honest i have never watched the finished video full like full length it's i i've done a fair amount of like Public speaking and other sorts of stuff over over the years, and there is definitely benefit to be gained from like watching yourself and being like, "Oh, I could have done that better," or like, "Oh, I would have done this differently." And I just like have not been in the mood to do it with that with that video. Like, I can't I can't just sit back and like watch it and and kind of enjoy it for what it is. It, like, I would be bringing a critical eye to it. So I'm not sure how much of it they cut and how much they kept. I do remember there's like, there's one piece, I think it was an aside about how three tier system developed or the impact of prohibition on on beer in the US and beer styles in general, where I'm like not really looking at the camera. That's because when we filmed it, we had like the A camera, which was my iPhone. And then we had like my computer set up over here, like filming with the webcam. And that was just like a question that they asked me like in between takes, but I guess they really liked my answer for it. So they're like, we're going to use that even though he's not like, it wasn't filmed on the main camera and he's not really looking at the camera at all. So I, I did see that at least, but yeah, I'm not, some styles did not get all of the love that they should have. Some styles maybe got more love than they should have. I tried to be, I, I based the, listing of the styles on the bjcp guidelines since that's what we used at cicerone Um, and i tried to not denigrate any styles there are some styles that i like more than others but in in all honesty like you know i've seen some of the comments on youtube that are like oh he's trying really hard not to say that american lager sucks and it's like it doesn't suck i you know it's a it is a it is not a beer that I drink very often, but it is a, by the breweries that make it like a very carefully crafted and technically made beverage that appeals to a lot of people. So like, you know, I don't think, I I, I don't think that styles like that are like, they're bad styles. There's just some that I enjoy drinking more and some that I enjoy less, but.
0: Yeah, I think, it did do a good job of pulling bias out in some way. And I think that the question of audience was addressed very well insofar as this is probably a little bit more of a general public audience than you're used to talking about at depth with with styles. And I also thought it was interesting, like the thing about, the tier system was that it was more than just a, this style, this style, this style. There was other kind of interesting things that made the world of beer specific and interesting. So it was, it was admittedly cooler than I thought it was going to be.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, it, I was impressed with the, what the finished product looked like. I mean, it ter- I, when I was doing it, I was like, I don't know, like they've got, lots of people working so hopefully they can make this look good but i i don't know how this is going to turn out and it's it's been received really well so that that is uh thank you i appreciate it
0: it is wired magazine after all they better know what they're doing right (laughs) they have they have some
1: resources that most of us do not
0: yeah so speaking of documenting beverages the last time we ran into each other was actually when you were documenting some fine beverages at the beer temple and I was pretty envious of you and whoever would be the ones drinking all the beverages that you opened up in that uh, documentation session. And a lot of that was for your uh, work at the Cicerone program. Uh, what are your responsibilities there nowadays, uh, At you know, in the pandemic time? And is every day like going to the beer temple and opening a bunch of Lambic and enjoying it?
1: Not that you were
0: only enjoying it, then you were actually dutifully documenting it.
1: So I will say, uh, you can you can set your set your envy aside. Uh, we I so for that I was taking a bunch of pictures of different brands, um, and for for a specific project, and uh, didn't actually open too many of the of the beers that I had. There, you know, we took a lot of shots of, like you said, like lambics and other Belgian styles. In some cases, uh, you know, I was using beer from the office, which that was December, and we closed the office in March, so those beers were beers that were never going to be drank, and at that point were well past their prime. Um, in some other cases, you know, it's like I don't want to open a Belgian double to just to a pic like i don't want to spend six bucks just to take a picture of it if i don't have to so like i had the the west bottle set up there next to a carefully concocted mixture of uh amstel light and and celebrator that looked reasonably like a double um so uh so yeah you, you can you can set your envy aside there wasn't there was a lot of picture taking and not a lot of actual enjoyment of uh, of the beverages. Um, but yeah, role at Cicerone. So I'm the content director there, which basically means that I'm responsible or oversee everything that we put out to the world, uh, whether it's educational materials, translations of those materials, trainings. Um, and pre-pandemic, you know, I did a lot more speaking at conferences promoting the program helping to spin up instructors in various parts of the country or various parts of the world a lot less live training and action going on at at this point maybe some of that will resume later but uh, at least right now a lot of my job is more focused on on production of educational content we've especially due to the pandemic started to make some moves towards building more e-learning content um, just so that we can, we have another delivery vehicle to get beer education out to people. Um, and people are a lot more receptive to e-learning now than they than they were a couple of years ago, go figure. So, so that's a lot of what my day-to-day looks like at this point.
0: When you're looking at the sort of standard bearers of styles and how the Cicerone program has also kind of grown over time. You were, I believe, the youngest to get your master's C road in 2013, right? That, that's correct. And, and so that's as you stated earlier, forever ago. Um, how, like, like do time. these sta- <laughs> do these standard bearers change in some way? Like, is Bell's too hard still this uh, standard of an American IPA? Do like where. Is there a trajectory of the styles changing and then the standard bearers changing as well?
1: Totally. And I, I, that's one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about beer styles. I, there are some people that treat beer styles as like gospel and immutable. And, and I think it's important to recognize even the organizations that put them out. They're referred to as style guidelines. And so they, you know, they change over time. They're meant to reflect what is out there in the industry and different, what people think about different styles changes from year to year, decade to decade. What people thought an American IPA was in the 90s is different than what they thought in the 2000s. It's different than what they thought Ten years ago five years ago like it that style almost more than any i feel like has gone through a a series of evolutions and you look at i think bell's too hearted is a great example where like that to me is more of an old school ipa like it's got some crystal malt it's got a little bit of sweetness to it um i still think of it as a as a really great example of the style but there are definitely people that would say like no it's too you know at this point IPAs have shifted to being a little bit lighter in color and less sweet. So there are, in my mind, there are two places that styles are important. Um, one is in the competition setting. So when you have a competition like the Great American Beer Festival or a, a homebrewing competition, like you need something to judge. You need you don't necessarily need this. I've been to competitions where it's just like, which one do you like the most? But those generally like, I I feel like that's not a great exercise since personal preference is so different from one person to the next. What style guidelines do for competitions is they allow you to have a somewhat objective standard that you're grading each of these beers against and allows you to say, you know, this beer did the best job of hitting on what these guidelines say the style is supposed to be. So that is an area where like adherence to the guidelines is, is important. The other place where styles are important though, I would argue like strict adherence is, is not at all necessary. Um, and that's as a communication tool. You know, think if you were selling beer to people, like every beer you sold, you're like, this is Sierra Nevada's beer, like whatever you want to call it. It's like, it's got about five and a half percent alcohol. It's moderately maybe pronounced bitterness. It has like a little bit of like a pine and grapefruit flavor and aroma. It's got kind of like caramel and bready, like go into this whole spiel, or you can be like, this is their American pale ale. And for a customer that has an idea of what an American pale ale is, that term conveys all of that information. So, you know, for most beer out there, do the beers have to hew exactly to style guidelines? No, uh, I think variety is one of the things that makes this industry as cool as it is. Styles, in some cases, just serve as a as a jumping off point. It, like you know, if you know what a an American pale ale is, you can imagine what a jasmine pale ale would be like, or uh, an American pale ale with chili pepper. Like it it allows people to be creative while still. Allowing for a shared understanding between breweries and their customers. Um, I feel like I've like tangented and gone way uh, off on this, but like, uh, but I do think it's important to keep in mind when you think about beer styles that styles change over time. Um, you look at the BJCP guideline for saison these these days, and um, it specifies that. Saison is a product that is just made with Saccharomyces yeast, normal brewer's yeast. It doesn't have any wild microorganisms or, or, or bugs in it. Um, that sort of captures Cezanne of a, of a certain time period. Were beers that were made kind of in that same vein, would those have been made with a mixed culture historically? Potentially, probably. Um, at, at this point, a lot of brewers that are making Cezanne, particularly in the U.S., are doing mixed culture fermentations. So at what point you know, does that sort of start to influence the guideline? Um, and in a lot of cases, the market changes faster than the guidelines can because people have to debate and argue over the guidelines. Whereas in, in the market, it's just like, I made this thing because I thought it was cool. And it, if it takes off, it takes off. So I, I, I think styles are an extremely valuable paradigm through which to kind of like learn about beer Uh, but I think it's important to remember that they're flexible and that there's a lot of beer a lot of really excellent beer that doesn't necessarily fall into a specific well-defined style.
2: So with this objectivity at the panel and subjectivity when it hits the consumer there's not really this sense of uniformity within styles and Personally, for me, I feel styles and descriptions are important for the consumer to know what they're purchasing. If there's this ambiguity in what someone is purchasing, how is the consumer supposed to stay informed? I would tend to think we'd wind up with an environment uh, much like the wine world where people are intimidated as fuck when they look at the wine shelf because there's all these grape varietals, sure, but within each grape varietal, people are like, I don't know what the fuck I'm looking at. And immediately people shut down. I feel like beer at this point is still rather friendly and people know what they're kind of buying. But if we continue down this rabbit hole, like you're saying, and beer becomes more subjective and trends and styles tend to just spiral out of control, how do consumers know what they're going to be purchasing?
1: You know, I would say I'd maybe even push back on one of the things you said. I feel like beer is starting to get there. Like, I do think that to some, in some aspects, like it is still approachable-ish, but not as approachable as it used to be. Like, and you know, I think it's easier for those of us that like work in the industry, work with these products. Like I can look at a lineup of beers and and suss out like what's going on and, and what I want. But, you know, I've walked through Benny's recently Um, like walking down the aisles of just one, like a lot of breweries have kind of gone in the direction of just like crazy color palette cans. And so you have just like this, like kaleidoscope wall of cans that is like, it's, it's like your, your beer aisle psychedelic experience, but it's, it's confusing. Like it's hard to, to necessarily know what you're getting. And I, I think that to some extent, people do play looser with the way that they, they talk about styles. Now that's not always the case. I think a lot of, you know, you walk down that aisle of, of multicolored cans and a lot of it is just hazy IPA. So, um, at least from that perspective, it's like, well, you're getting a hazy IPA and, uh, and there's so much of that on the market that, um, I think at least that hopefully makes it a little bit easier for people to find something that they want. But it is, it has gotten more challenging, I think, over the last five, ten years to be able to easily navigate what people are are putting out there.
2: This is kind of the trend we're going to see. When we look at the wine shelves, a lot of people will buy that wine with the tag below it. 99 points, 92 points. Um is this kind of the future of beer, and how do Untapped and Rape Beer kind of fit into this um, consumer world? Oh man, that is
1: a <laughs> that is a, that is a question. Um, I don't know. I I kind of I'll take the Untapped Rape Beer beer advocate separately. I kind of hope that it's not the future of beer because. One of the things that we've hit on, you know, you mentioned, like, is it important? Should stuff be super uniform? Um, I don't think it's essential that all beers fall neatly within the guidelines of whatever style they purport to be. Um, you know, styles allow for some wiggle room anyway, so that beers can be different from one another. But I feel like we've moved in a direction of uniformity already in that, you um, like the beers that are on the shelf I mentioned hazy ipa earlier like that's so much of the beer that's out there and it's reflective of what the majority of consumers want to drink um i think uh but you know i think about like what i like some of the styles that i like drinking and you just see them dying and i don't know if it's if it's a lack of, uh, of education, lack of people knowing, or, you know, even if you introduced everyone and we're like, British mild is a really cool style and like convince people to think that, that still they would be like, yeah, I tried it. It's not really my thing. Like maybe, maybe that would be where we would end up. But like there are styles like that where like, I love that style of beer and uh, you just can't find it because it has become so uniform. So I, I hope that's not the dir- direction that things are going. As like an anecdote, I remember I was up in uh, I was up in Canada at a at a beer festival, and uh, it you know pulled in breweries from all over the world and some of the, like hugely hype breweries. And the guy that put it together, he said to me, he's like, he's like, you know, I've got like I've got fifty of the best breweries in the world here, and I've got three fucking beers. Like just acknowledging the fact that at this point. You know, if if a brewery is pouring two beers at a festival, like one is probably a hazy IPA, and the other one might be a pastry stout. It's like, it 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 has become a lot more uniform than it once was. And so, as somebody who really likes variety, and as somebody who really enjoys a lot of those classic kind of more understated styles, I hope that that's not the the eventual direction that things go. Um, in terms of how people use beer ratings to make decisions, uh, I think you already see some of that. It, like I've definitely seen beer stores that have shelf talkers with a score from beer advocate or, or rate beer. Um, and I think people probably use untapped, I've never seen untapped scores used at, on like a shelf talker, but I know that it definitely impacts the way that people think about different brands and, you know, same kind of conundrum like uh, Munich Helles is like uh, untapped as a five, I believe a five bottle cap rating scale, like Munich Hellas is never going to craft uh, crest like three and a half. Cause uh, whereas like three and a half is probably the lowest that any IPA would like, even like a really, not good IPA. would like carry a rating that high just because of the way that people approach rating those beers. So, you know, I think that there are issues inherent in in overly relying on those scales as they stand to make decisions. Um, I do think people will continue to use them, but I I don't know. I, I would be, I'm, um, I hope that people can find a way to counteract some of those, some of those things. I wish people would drink more classic styles just because I, don't, I feel like an old man, like the old man yells at clouds, like <laughs> talking about this, but like there's so much of what is popular in beer these days doesn't resemble what I think think of as beer um
0: sure i I think some of this is uh and i know this isn't the only kind of perspective on why things are but evolution is where we're kind of at and this whole thing is fluid so the people that you and i and sam kind of grew up in our formative beer drinking years drinking those were people that learned about brewing through homebrew texts from britain or from uh you know belgium which were more or less british texts as well so or german texts too which are their own thing but the sources that people were using for information on homebrewing then were something that's maybe a little bit different from now, but those things are also considered classics. So it's a matter of the populace is going to change eventually because consumer tastes do change over time. While we do have these like hazy IPAs and uh, slushy this and other this, that, and the other thing, adjunct things that are more resembling like FMBs than actual beers, you do have light loggers selling in the craft space as well. And these things, you know, do resemble classic styles in a lot of ways. And so there are those undercurrents then. And I think the thing that we can kind of look at as a positive to your sort of intuitional desire is that those texts are timeless. That's the thing that's the constant in this evolution is that people that are into making stuff have something built into them that means they're always going to look for those texts and looking at who they're inspired by drinking, who inspired them, who inspired them. Like, I think that that's kind of how that curiosity works for those people that are interested in brewing or manufacturing um, and things like that. But there, there is an aspect of the consumers and where they're at now and creating a system or not, maybe not creating a system, but if there could be a system of beer evaluation for the consumers, that's wide enough. The issue is that untapped has left everything in the dust at this point. Like you're going to need so much tech and you're going to need so much buy-in to get something off the ground that can counter that or untapped can be shaped in a manner that can make it uh more weighted or more uh equitable for all styles of beer instead of certain ones that do well that drive people towards that platform
1: at this point i think that's probably the the better hope i think creating a, a a new platform is is you know it's one of those things like you said there's like an entrenched power there um so hard to overcome that. Um, and I I agree with that point. Like, I think everybody kind of loves the beers that they come up drinking, like the beers that were sort of essential when I started getting into beer are still some of the beers that I like really know and love. And And, and part of it is just about like, looking at what's happening now and being like, well, this is what people who are, people who are just like discovering beer now, this is what they're really into. And that's just as valid. So there, there is a part of me that's like, I just talked about how styles change over time. So like, why, why can't I accept that? (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I do think, I think too, a, a part of that is that if you go to some of like the historic beer regions like if you go to the uk if you go to belgium germany like they have breweries popping up that reflect american the kind of the american craft ethos but they're still very much driven by their traditions um you know in in germany like hellas is just like a way of life like you just like you you don't even it's like do you eat bread most days of the week? Well, we just like, we drink five liters of Hellas. Like, it's just what we do. It's, it's what we live. And I feel like in the U S we haven't, at least not until recently, we didn't like have a strong identity behind our beer culture over the past 20 to 30 years. I think we've developed it. And it's just like hops, Um, like hops and experimentation and kind of just like extremeness. Uh, So, you know, I think that what's going on now is, is kind of uh, an embrace of that. And there's always going to be people that want to be on the edge of like, okay, what is crazy? What can we do? I want to be drinking the most. Ten years ago, it was like, I want to drink the most bitter beer. Now it's like, I want to drink the haziest beer. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think that there's always going to be people in that vein. And there's also always going to be people kind of on the flip side who are like, you know, I really want a, a like you said, it's like a timeless classic. Um, so my hope is, is that that continues to be the, the way that things are enough so that those beers can still survive.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that the localization movement can play a part of that too, where, even pre-pandemic over the last like seven years or so, we've seen food culture become much more localized and totally. we've seen the beverage culture as a result of the pandemic slightly become more localized. Certainly on one end, if we're looking at at beer as this like third wave in America at this point and maybe other countries now being third wave, I think that localization is gonna play an interesting part in all of that where certain attributes of maybe American beer culture in Denmark or in Sweden are gonna be accepted as just parts of their fabric. And it's gonna move into another direction in the future as a result of the localization or maybe the more unsustainable trends of flying in hazy IPA from other half every second week and selling it at 40 bucks a four pack like that's not a long-term thing that's going to impact beer culture. That's just an indulgence more than anything. So I think it's a it's a long-term thing, but it'll be interesting to see how localization plays into all of that. And I think that's gonna be a part of the answer of what we see over the next five years too.
1: Well, and another, an, another piece of that is that with so many really small breweries, breweries are, are able to carve out, a, a, like, a niche of of what they do specifically. Um, not every brewery that is small is doing that, but, you know, there are breweries that are, like, we're going to focus exclusively on English styles of beer, and that's what we're going to do. And because they're small, they're able to attract enough people who are into that idea that, like, they can they can float their business doing that. I think a brewery is, like, Hogshead in Denver, um, civil life in St. Louis. They're like Hogshead is like one of my top five favorite places to drink in the world. Like I just, I love that place. Um so you know, I I love that with this kind of like with breweries evolving to a point where you can have a small super specialty brewery that just serves that sort of that sort of small sector of the beer world that you do get some preservation of of those styles and of those types of beers and uh, honestly it makes for a really special experience when you go there which i think only only adds to it
0: is the cicerone program going to create programs around other malt-based carbonated beverages like seltzer and how do you where do you draw the line as beer because that is the education in Cicerone is beer but there are things that are defined as beer that are not what Hogshead is making
1: (laughs) so we've talked about that and I think you know I I don't know that I'm, I don't want to say like never, but like we've talked about things like seltzer and one of the things that we brought up when we were like, nah, that's not really the direction we want to go is why do people need to have this knowledge? Why is it important that people have this knowledge? And for some of these more esoteric beer styles, it's like, it is valuable to understand the particulars of the style because it helps you either sell it better or it helps you explain it to customers better. Um, it helps you create a better experience for customers through your knowledge of the product. So like that's it, it to me, at least that's what, that's the value of Cicero and that's the value of what we do in the world of seltzer. Like I don't, I could be wrong, but I don't think a lot of, customers are like you know I like this but I really would like it more if you told me how seltzer was made or they're like you know I really want to know what what distinguishes. like how, tell me about what distinguishes the the blackberry from the the mango flavor that you have it's like well we used a blackberry flavor in the blackberry one and we used a mango flavor in the mango one like there is definitely a lot of technical expertise that goes into making those products so that they are kind of like a clean neutral product with just like a pure fruit expression. But like, there's a reason, I think that, I think there's a reason why you don't have like soda sommeliers out there. Like it's most people are like, well, I like strawberries. So I drink this strawberry flavored beverage. There's, there's not as much that I think consumers want to know about them. And, and so I think that that information is is a less important part of the experience. And that's kind of why, when we thought about approaching it, it's like, what would we even test people on uh, about these things? Like what, you know, there isn't necessarily, at least I don't think of, and maybe this is me being naive, but like, I don't think of like different styles of seltzer. Like there is seltzer as a category and in by and large, what makes one seltzer different from the next is like different flavorings. So, you know, it would be like making a an entire program around the, the pastry stout style and being like, well, what distinguishes these from one another? It's like, well, they just use different ingredients.
0: That's interesting. And I I appreciate that parallel to like adjunct stout, which is you're looking at beer plus flavor, right? Totally. And with seltzer, I think that there may be an opportunity to distinguish malt-based seltzers from seltzers that are not and to further broaden the category where there's a reality that we're probably going to lose beer drinkers to seltzer and then they're going to move into the the next thing beyond alien juice, you know? So like maybe there's an opportunity to, uh, because so much of the education happens to people that are selling into on and off premise and that are involved in the second and third tiers that the Cicerone does that it it's an, it could be an interesting way to, to keep people in these categories. And also to better broaden the understanding of the production techniques that can and can't go in without stating whether something's right or what's wrong. It's just like, these are different things and they do create different beverages.
1: Totally, I guess like, you know, what the kind of the question that I would ask is like, do customers care? Like, do customers care if their seltzer is malt-based or if it's, uh, you know, a sugar-based or if it's made from, some? like, is there a notable impact on the flavor? And does anyone out there care about it? Because um, I think that that's, like, an important part of the equation. You know, when you look at what, when you look at the qualities that most people sell their beer on, it's, well, this one tastes like this. It has these flavors to it and when you look at what most seltzer is sold on, it's like this one has this many calories and this many grams of carbohydrates. Like that is for a lot of customers, the key selling point. Um, So, and like, you know, I made the parallel to, to adjunct stouts, but like even that I think is more interesting because in the world of seltzer, you know, you're flavoring it with a, with a flavorant added at the end of the process, at least in the world of adjunct stouts, it's like, Okay, if you're going to use chili peppers and peanut butter powder and, like, zebra cakes and, like, Cinnabon, like, you're probably going to use those in different ways. You're going to put them in. There's there's some amount of knowledge behind, like, well, do you put those in during the boil or do you put them in, like, post-fermentation? Like, how you utilize them to get those flavors into the beer that I think is, like, interesting and still requires – sort of uh, expertise with using those sorts of ingredients. And so, and those are the sorts of things that like at the upper levels of the program, we will talk about and test on like, how do you, how are different ways that brewers incorporate these sort of novel ingredients into their beers? Um, So part of it is like, I don't, like I said, never say never, but I don't know exactly what we would cover that I feel like actually m- would make a difference to customers.
0: Fair. I think that's a a good note for us to wrap up on. So, Pat, do you have any uh, any parting words apart from uh, everyone go buy my book?
1: I was going to say everyone go buy some Milds. That was that was going to be my I, <laughs> parting words. Like enjoy a beer flavored uh, beer. And you know, I I feel like I sound super cynical. I'm sitting here drinking an alarmist with you, So like, I'm drinking a ACIPA right now. Um, but, uh, I, one of the things that I love about what I do in my job is, is hopefully exposing people to things that they otherwise would not have tried. I think one of the, downsides of getting into this kind of like hazy IPA everywhere sort of landscape is that it it to an extent prevents people from trying a wider variety, like it, it gives you the illusion of variety because you have all of these different hazy IPAs when it's like, well, but like beer can be so much more than that. And one of the things that I've always loved doing, whether it's with a group of professionals or a group of customers is being able to taste people out on things that they otherwise might not have tried. Um, You know, doing a a tasting with a group on smoked beer and maybe 90% of the group is like, this is terrible. But for like those 10% of people that are like, Oh my God, I love this. I I never would have tried this. Like, that's so cool. I love being able to do that sort of thing. So I guess on a parting note, like, go out and try a beer style that you're not familiar with go and uh, not a not a brewery and and like a style that you're like i love hazy ipas never tried this brewery i'm gonna go try their hazy ipa like go try a style that you've never tried before um you might not enjoy it at all it might be a terrible experience and i apologize for that but like you might find your new favorite beer and that's, that's what brought me into beer was this kind of whole world of different flavor experiences that you could have. Um, I really want people to still be able to have that experience.
0: Awesome. we can We can attest to that as well. Definitely don't look at just the end caps, but explore the aisles and take a risk. It's not the end of the world if you don't like it, but try to enjoy yourself and try something new. So Pat, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops.
1: Thank you for having me, it was, it was a blast.